This morning's gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Isaiah, Isaiah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiod the father of Elikim, Elikim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile to Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, We are closing in on Christmas, and since we've been in a series looking at overviews of uh, tracing out the, the, uh, the central storyline of the Bible, uh, trying to get the big picture what the Bible's all about, we're this morning, and actually uh, next week, we're looking this week at Matthew 1 and next week at Luke 1, and what we're doing is, what I want to show you is in this genealogy, which is the way in which Matthew begins the story of Jesus' birth, the Christmas story, uh, he is telling us a great deal about what the entire Bible is about. In fact, uh, in this one passage, you, you essentially are spanning a period of time that covers uh, most of the years that are actually covered in the Bible itself. Uh, what do we learn here? There's a lot more than you may think. What do we learn here uh, about what the story of the Bible is all about? I'm going to just pull out four things. And here's, I'll just tell you what they are. They're not, they may look disjointed, they actually fit together. Uh, We learn here that the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. 
Secondly, that all the best stories are really true. Thirdly, that Jesus Christ completely turns upside down the things that the world values. And fourthly, in Christ, you get your final rest, your ultimate rest. First, first thing is that the gospel is not good advice. It's good news. It's very important to see that Matthew does not begin his story of Jesus' birth saying, once upon a time. He does not say once upon a time. See, that's the way fairy stories and legends and myths, you see, and Star Wars starts. Uh, that's uh, when once upon a time signals, this probably didn't happen. Uh, we don't know it happened. It's a beautiful story. But that's not what Matthew does. He says, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and this means he's grounding what Jesus Christ is and does in real history. Why is that important? Here's why. Uh, The gospel is good news, not good advice. Advice is counsel about what you must do. News is a report about what's already been done. Advice urges you to make something happen. News urges you to recognize something has already happened and you must respond to it. Advice says, basically, it's all up to you. News is this has already been accomplished in history. It's actually happened. So, for example, uh, if you had an invade, let's just say it was an invading army coming to a town. What does that town need? What that town needs is military advisors. It needs advice. And the military advisors say the earthworks go over there and the marksmen go over there and the tanks go over there or the cavalry or the Archers go over there, depending on the century. In other words, if you have an invading army, uh, they need advice. They need military advisors. But what if you're a great king and you have defeated the invading army? You've saved the town. You've already accomplished their salvation. Then what do you do? Then you send not military advisors. You don't send advice. You send messengers. And the Greek word for that is angeloi, angels. You send angels, like at Christmas. And the messengers do not say, here's what you have to do, but here's what is being done. Here is what has been done, and you need to respond accordingly. What's been done changes everything. Now respond. And that's the reason why Christmas is not about how to live your life better. Isn't it sweet? The Christmas story teaches us some things about how to live. No, the Christmas story is not about how we ought to live. It's not an inspiring story to tell you how to live. In fact, think about it. What in the world would the Christmas story be inspiring us to do? Be shepherds? Um, Childbirth out of doors? That's wonderful, I'm sure. I mean, think about what are we trying to do? What what in the world is the Christmas story about if if it's a once upon a time? If it's just a sweet story about how to live? But of course it isn't. No, it's an announcement of something that's been done. Every other religion, and unfortunately many churches, when they talk about salvation, they talk about it as advice. Salvation is advice on how you have to wrestle and struggle, you have to perform, you have to pray, you have to read, you have to obey, you have to have transformations of consciousness. 
But the gospel is a message. So all other founders of all other religions say, I am come to show you the way to spiritual reality. Do all this. See, advice. But Jesus Christ, the founder of Christianity, came and said, no, 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 I am spiritual reality come down to you. I have gone where you could never go. You could never come up to me, therefore I have come down to you. And Christmas actually tells us what he came to do. Even Christmas is a foreshadowing of what he came to do. We have put ourselves in the place of God that is in charge of our lives. So God has put himself in our place where we deserve to be. Where's that? Out in the cold. Out in the stable. No room. Jesus Christ was thrown out in the cold where we deserve to be, spiritually speaking, so that we could be brought in. And therefore, I mean, the first point, very important, is Christianity is not really primarily self-improvement. Christianity is not really a, a place to go to get some inspiration and get some guidance for life. Now, of course, Christianity has all kinds of implications for how you live. But primarily, Christianity is not about adopting some ethics or, or living in a new way or even joining a community. Of course, Christianity entails all that. But it's, it's primarily, do you believe the message? Is it true? Did God really become a human being? Did he really live and suffer and die for you? Did he really rise triumphant over the grave? If that's the case, then all this other stuff, the Bible's filled with all these stories and ways of living, then they make some sense. Then all the things that Christianity says, this is right and that's wrong, then it makes some sense. But if it's not true, then it's all nonsense. Because primarily, and Christmas shows us this, Christianity is not, the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. This is the genealogy. First. Secondly, secondly, the genealogies that do tell us something about all the stories. The gospel, the Christmas account actually happened. It's a fact. But it tells us something about all stories, all the stories that we love. Um, one of the things that bothers modern literary critics is the pervasive appeal the kind of uh, unstoppable appeal of fairy stories or fantasies or myths and legends. You know, uh, we're supposed to be more realistic. And yet, uh, you know, Hollywood keeps, you know, basically, I mean, the Grimm's fairy tales basically being recycled all the time. That's, all, that's, all, that's what all the movies are. Oh, they're in all forms, you know, and they always come, they're superheroes and they, you know, or they do this and that. But they're basically, the old stories are constantly being churned out again and again and again. And, uh, and this really upsets uh, high critics. So, for example, uh, some years ago in The New Yorker, Anthony Lane, who I, whose reviews I love very much, actually reviewed Lord of the Rings, and this is what he said about it. He said, um, it is a book that bristles with bravado, and yet to give into it, to cave into it, in other words, to really enjoy it, to give into it, to cave into it, as most of us did on the first reading, betrays a reluctance to face the finer shades of life that verges on the cowardly. Now, here's what they mean by that. Fairy stories, the great stories, you know, Beauty and the Beast, Sleeping Beauty, you know, Peter Pan, you know, Hercules, uh, King Arthur, Faust, all, the great stories didn't really happen. They're not factually true, right? No. And yet, there seems to be a set of longings in the human heart that realistic fiction can never satisfy. Because deep in the human heart, there's a desire to escape death. There's a desire for the supernatural. 
There's a desire for love that never parts. There's a desire to somehow not age but live long enough to realize your creative dreams. There's a desire to fly. There's a desire to, uh, to communicate with other non-human beings like angels. There's a desire to, um, uh, to triumph over evil. And the stories that actually, the, the well-told stories, whether movies or books or plays, the well-told stories that have all those fabulous uh, uh, aspects to it, they have magic or they have, the, they have all those things. If they're well-told for a moment, we find them incredibly moving. We find them incredibly satisfying. Because even though they know somehow factually those things didn't happen, that our hearts long for or sense that, that we really are enchanted, that we really are under the power of a sorcerer of some sort, that we really weren't meant to die, that we really need to defeat death. So here's beauty in the beast, and we sense there must be a love that can break us out of the beastliness that we have created for ourselves. Here's Sleeping Beauty. We are really kind of in a sleeping enchantment and there's a, a handsome prince or somebody, a noble prince that can come and, and, and destroy it. And here's Peter Pan. We read these things, we hear these things, and it stirs something as deep underneath our hearts believe or want to believe that these things are true. Even though the stories aren't true, that the underlying realities behind the stories are. But our mind says, no, 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 no. And Anthony Lane says, no, 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 no. He says, you know, the trouble is when you give yourself to fairy stories and you really believe in moral absolutes and supernatural and, uh, and, and that there's really triumph over death and that someday we're going to live forever and, you know, that, that's not reality and it's cowardly to give yourself to it. So along we come to Christmas. And here's a story about someone from outer space who breaks into this world and has miraculous powers you know, and it can calm the storm and raise people from the dead and heal people. And then his enemies turn on him and he's put to death and it seems like yeah, all hope is over, you know. And then, but then he rises from the dead and he saves everyone. And what, we do, what do we do? We, we read that and we go, another great story. Wait till Peter Jackson gets his fingers on this. It'll be, it'll be incredible, and we'll, we'll, we'll cheer, and it'll make us feel good, and then we'll leave the theater and get back to reality. It looks like the Christmas story is one more story pointing to these underlying realities, but the book of Matthew says, no, it won't begin once upon a time. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus. You know what the book of Matthew is saying? You know what the Bible says? Jesus Christ is not one more story pointing to these underlying realities, Jesus Christ is the underlying reality to which all the stories point. Jesus is real. Jesus really happened. Jesus Christ has come from that ideal world that we, we know is there, we sense is there, our hearts know, even though our heads say, no, no, no. He's come from that world and he's broken. He's punched a hole in the concrete slab between the ideal and the real, and he's come into our world. And if he's right, if what Jesus says is right, and he is, it is. If the Bible is right, and it is. If Matthew is right, and he is, then guess what? There is an evil sorcerer in this world, and we are under enchantment, and there has been a noble prince who has broken the enchantment. And there is a love that we never part from, and we will fly, and we will defeat death. And this world is not just red and tooth and claw, but it was created by God and created by angels, and someday the trees are going to dance. That's what it says, and sing. 
In other words, even though all those stories aren't factually true, the fact is that the true story of Jesus makes all of the best stories true and real. And uh, if you're a Christian and you understand the gospel and you see some little boy or girl put down a book and say, I wish there was, you know, uh, I I wish there was a noble prince. I wish there was a Superman. I wish there was a Hercules. I wish we could fly. I wish we could live forever. You got to be careful because you can't just blurt out, we will. Especially if their parents are around, you know, they're going to be upset. But, you know, there's that place in that, you know, B, C, you know, that B or C level movie, Hook. Have you ever seen that, seen that movie? There's a place where Maggie Smith playing an old gnarled Wendy from the Peter Pan story. And she's old and she's talking to a grown-up Peter Pan who is, uh, uh, you know, has amnesia. But sort of senses that their stories are true, but nah, nah, nah. But he has amnesia. And at one point she looks at him and says, Peter, the stories are true. And if you understand the genealogy of Jesus, if you understand what the Bible says, you'll get a thrill because you realize we're all Peter Pans. We all have amnesia. And Matthew is saying, Peter, the stories are true. So first of all, we learn the gospel is not just good advice, it's good news. Secondly, we learn that uh, because it's a true story, it makes all the best stories actually in the ultimate sense true. Thirdly, The genealogy shows that Jesus Christ turns completely upside down the world's values. How and why? Now, this might look like a genealogy to you, but it's really not. It's a resume. See, in older times, your family, your pedigree, your clan, who you're connected to, that was your resume, okay? And therefore, a a family's genealogy or a person's genealogy was essentially the way in which the person recommended him or herself to the world. Now, by the way, back then, as today, and today as back then, people monkeyed with their resume. Uh, So, for example, if you started College A and flunked out, and then you started College B and you graduated, you probably won't, College A probably won't be on your resume, will it? You know, you know, we'll just leave that out. It's, you know, that was kind of a false start. So you don't even have it on there, right? So we all tend to, you know, <clears throat> leave out the parts of the resume that might not make us look good. And, of course, in the old times, people did that too. We know that Herod the Great purged all kinds of names out of his genealogy. You know, people he didn't want anyone to know were connected to him at all. Jesus does the opposite. Jesus does the very opposite. There are some amazing things about this genealogy. It's unlike any other ancient genealogy we have. Here's the first one. The first issue is there are five women in the genealogy. And in ancient times, women just weren't there. You didn't put women in there. Why? In those days, in those cultures, they weren't important. Yet Jesus has women in his genealogy. You might call them gender outsiders. More than that, most of the women were Gentiles. Tamar. Rahab, Ruth, Canaanites, Moabites. These are people that were considered, they weren't allowed into the, into the holy place. They weren't allowed into the, uh, into the tabernacle, the center. So they were unclean. They were spiritually unclean. So they're racial outsiders, and they're in Jesus' genealogy. But guess what? Not just gender outsiders and racial outsiders, also moral outsiders. Because... Matthew goes out of his way to talk about some of the most sordid and nasty and immoral and sinful incidents in the Bible, 
out of which came Jesus Christ. So for example, go up to verse 3, where it says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. You know how that happened? That was an incestuous act. Tamar tricked her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her. It was an act of incense. It's against the law of God, against the Mosaic law. And you know, even though Jesus was actually descended by Perez, not Zerah, Matthew puts both Perez and Zerah, Judah and Tamar in there. Why? To make sure that the reader remembers the whole story. And then, of course, Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho, a Canaanite prostitute. But most interesting at all, of all is this place down here where we have, uh, in verse 6, and Jesse, the father of King David. Ah, King David. Now, there's somebody you want on your genealogy. You know, you want royalty on your resume. Yeah. King David. He, yeah, I'm from him. And then it says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. God's weird. What was her name? Why did he... Why, did, why doesn't he just? Why doesn't Matthew just put his, her name in there? Well, let me tell you who Uriah was. Uriah was one of David's best friends. When David was running for his life from Saul, and his life was at stake, I mean, his life was hanging from a thread every minute. A group of men went out into the wilderness with David, and they put their lives on the line. They were his mighty men, and they uh, were fugitives with him, and they they risked everything for him and to save his life. And Uriah was one of them, one of his very best friends, a man who had risked his life for him. And when, later on, when David became king, he looked at Uriah's wife Bathsheba, and he wanted her, and he loved her, and what he did was he arranged to have Uriah killed so he could marry Bathsheba, out of whom came Solomon. And Matthew has the audacity... (laughs) See, you know why he leaves the name Bathsheba off there? That's not a slight of Bathsheba. It's a slam at David. And so here you have moral outsiders, adulteress, you see, adulterer, incest, see, prostitution. You got moral outsiders. You have uh, cultural outsiders. You have uh, racial outsiders, gender outsiders, and they're all in Jesus' genealogy. And we have to remember that the law of Moses precluded these people from the presence of God. See, you know, uh, an, an illegitimate, an illegal child, prostitute, Canaanites, see, adulterer. These are people that could not go into the presence of God, and yet there they are on Jesus' genealogy. He's owning them. He's owning them. Why? What does it mean? Here's what it means. First, on the one hand, these people who were excluded by culture, excluded by respectable society, and even excluded by the law of God, Jesus Christ is bringing in. And so it doesn't matter your pedigree, it doesn't matter how low you are in the social ladder, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter whether you've killed people, it doesn't matter whether you're a hitman for the mafia. The grace of Jesus Christ can cover you. But on the other hand, you know what it's also saying? Look at this King David. Look at this great guy, see? He's a man, not a woman. He's a Jew, not a Gentile. He's royalty, he's not poor, see? Yet he has done more, he has done something worse than any of the women in this, <laughs> in this entire history. Yet there he is. Why? The grace of Jesus Christ. See, the gospel's good news. It's not good advice, and therefore, it's what he has done for you that gives you a standing before God. And what does that mean? It's in in him. No one, not even the greatest, doesn't need the grace of Jesus Christ. But no one, not even the worst, 
can fail to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, prostitute and king sit down as equals, male and female, Jew and Gentile, see? one race and another race, moral and immoral, we're all the same. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you accept the good news, prostitute and king sit down as equals. Amazing. You know, in the old King James Bible, this says he begat, begat. These are the begats, right? So-and-so begat, so-and-so, and so-and-so begat. And And you know what's amazing? The grace of Jesus Christ is so pervasive that even the begats are dripping with it. Have you really, really understood the honor of being a believer? Do you realize the honor of being a Christian? Do you realize that King David has nothing on you, even if you've been a prostitute? This is New York, so maybe some of you are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. He's not ashamed of us. That's why we're all in his genealogy. Hebrews 2 says he is not ashamed to call us brethren. And it also means, of course, that Jesus Christ's values are very different. The world values pedigree. The world values money. The world values race. The world values class. And Jesus turns all that upside down. It matters not. And he says, in my church, those things that are so important out there should not be so important in here. One last thing. See, genealogies tell you a lot. So the gospel is not good advice, it's good news. It means all the great stories are really true. It means Jesus Christ turns the values of the world on its head. But lastly, it means that Christ is the ultimate rest. What are all these numbers about? Why does uh, uh, Matthew say, so there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to Christ. And modern readers say, and? (laughs) So, okay. And of course, our problem is we say 14, 14, 14, okay, you know, all right, 42. No, that's, you're missing the point. Jesus Christ is the seventh seven. Fourteen means two sevens. Fourteen means three, four sevens. Fourteen means fifth and sixth seventh, and Jesus is the seventh seven. What's that? Well, God rested on the seventh day. The Sabbath points to rest. And every seven years, the land had to be lie, had to lie fallow. Uh, you had to give it uh, a chance to uh, you know repre- replenish its nutrients. So the seventh year represented rest. And in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, we're told that every seventh seven, every Sabbath Sabbath, in other words, the, uh, the seventh year of this, uh, the 49th year, the seventh seven, there was a jubilee year. And the jubilee year meant all the slaves were freed and all the debts were, were uh, forgiven and all the land and all the people have rest from their weariness and from their burden. And what Matthew is trying to say is if you understand that Jesus Christ was born not once upon a time, that he really broke into time and space, and he's, if you understand that, if you understand that he has accomplished your salvation, so prostitute and king sit down together in Jesus' table and he's equally proud of all of them. If you understand all that, that will give you rest. Oh, it will. He is the thing to which all the sevens in the Bible point. All the Jubilee, all the Sabbath, all the... He is. You say, how does it give you rest? Well, one, 
if you stop having to prove yourself, because you know, you know, it doesn't really matter whether in the end you're a prostitute or a king in this world. You need God's grace, you can have God's grace, and in spite of your failures, you don't have to prove yourself. It brings an inside rest. I want to do better in my life to please him, but I don't have to do better in order to, to know him. And as a result, that brings rest on the inside. But there's another way. A lot of us, a lot of us are, uh, need rest from the troubles of this world. And so we feel like we've got to control history. We've got to make everything go right. That's really exhausting. But what we have here is we know that actually all the stories are true. And someday we will meet the true love who will turn our beastliness into beauty. And someday we'll meet the, the true noble knight who will slay all the dragons, put everything right. Someday we have our great captain who has opened a cleft in the pitiless walls of the world, who has punched a hole between the ideal and the real. And some of that ideal is down here in the power of the Spirit. But eventually that whole concrete slab will be completely pulverized. And the glory of God will cover the world the way the waters cover the bottom of the sea. And that gives me rest. That gives you rest. It must give you rest. Not once upon a time, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Not once upon a time, Christ the Savior is born. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these lessons. And we do ask that as we ponder what it means that the gospel is good news, as we ponder what it means that the deepest longings of our heart will all be brought uh, to fulfillment eventually because of your son, Jesus Christ. When we think about how he is, he's a lover of the poor, he's a lover of the marginal, he's a lover of justice. When we think about these things, that brings us rest. We pray, Lord, that in the busyness and the hecticness of Christmas, we might not forget that the point of Christmas is for Jesus Christ to bring us rest. We pray that you'll help us to rest in him through the gospel. It's in his name we pray. Amen.